This episode of New Politics was released on the 5th of November, 2022, and produced on the land of the Wongal and Wajuk people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, the debate over inflation and tax cuts continues, robo-debt rears its ugly head again, the retrial of Bruce Lerman and a racist attack in the West, and is Daniel Andrews really a divisive leader? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, purveyor of fine foods. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription. But whether it's a subscription or if you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a T-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au. And all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. budget is all over and just like many of the previous budgets it's almost disappeared from the news cycle although there's still some remnants that are still being discussed and the two big issues are inflation and tax cuts. The Reserve Bank did raise interest rates during the week and that's the seventh consecutive interest rate rise and the Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe said that the rates will keep rising although we do have to remember that he also said that interest rates wouldn't rise until 2024 and That was just a few months before the last election, so we can't really trust what he's got to say about interest rates. And and these interest rate rises are primarily being used to curb inflation. The Labor government is facing many economic problems that they have to address, and it doesn't really matter who caused these problems. They're in government now, and it's their job to repair the damage. And some economists have suggested that the state of the economy now is very similar to the Depression-era economy, with a combination of high national debt and inflation. And the Scullin government at that time, they couldn't resolve the issues they inherited and they were thrown out of office in 1931. It's difficult to compare economies from different eras. The economy today is far more complex and sophisticated than what it was in 1931, but there might be a few lessons for the Labor government. Fix the economy or face a very short period of time in office. Just to go back to the comparisons with Depression era and the Labor government in 1929 as opposed to the Labor government 91 years later. One, it's a more complex economy. It's a much more globalised economy with trade coming from all kinds of places and a lot more vital things being made overseas and a lot of vital things being exported. The world economy, the the Australian pound was on the gold standard. It's now the Australian dollar is market-based depending on trades as in terms of its inherent value. We had a, a different banking system, a much more regulated banking system. And the economy was a lot less complex. In terms of the Labor Party itself, Anthony Albanese runs a more united party than James Scullin had the misfortune to inherit. Scullin is one of those figures who was very good in every job he had except Prime Minister, and a lot of that was out of his control. One, he was handed essentially the hospital pass of the Great Depression on winning the 1929 election. Uh, One of only two in which the Prime Minister loses his seat, Stanley Melbourne Bruce, who had been the longest serving Prime Minister to that point. Scullin inherits 
a party that's still forming. The Labor Party is only 40 years old at this point. At the federal level, the federal party, it's really seven different parties with vastly different ideas about what Labor should be. So you have Queensland Labor, which membership is much more radical than its government. You have New South Wales Labor with the fiery Jack Lang as Premier screaming that tax money shouldn't be going to pay interest on loans that should never have been raised and that interest should be used to pay welfare and and get jobs happening again. So the Scullin government did receive a hospital pass back in 1929 and almost 100 years later, the Albanese government has also received a hospital pass as well, but he doesn't have to deal with Jack Lang this time around. But repairing the economy, that can be done. And that's what governments are there to do. So it doesn't really matter who's created these problems. As I mentioned before, the government is in place to resolve these issues. And the Hawke government inherited a range of economic problems back in 1983, including a recession, high unemployment and an inflation rate of over 10%. And whatever we do think about the liberalisation that the Hawke government did bring in at that time, including the floating of the dollar, privatisation, suppressing wages through the accord process... Those measures stabilised the economy at that time and they created a wide range of conditions that ultimately created a high-performing and recession-free economy for almost 30 years that benefited both sides of politics. And these were also reforms that we'd least expect to see from a Labor government, but the Hawke-Keating governments, they chose to implement these measures and they were rewarded with another four terms in government. And not just because of these reforms, they were quite a competent administration. They were also up against a divided Liberal Party at the time. And they also managed to win elections with unfavourable economic circumstances. Interest rates were 17% at the time of the 1990 election and the unemployment rate was 11% at the time of the 1993 election. And, and both of those elections were won by the Labor Party. So it's not a case where election losses automatically follow poor economic circumstances. And this is what the current Labor government needs to remember, that they just have to have the courage to implement the economic measures that will stabilise the economy and let the politics sort itself out later on. Success is success. And this is what the last government didn't understand, that if you do the job well, the reason Menzies gets in again and again is because policies are successful, the expansion of universities, the better trade deals they get, some of the foreign affairs things they do, not all of them. The Hawke government is successful because, again, the work it gets done, the benefits are seen by enough of the, the public. The Howard government, again, what Howard does well, at least in the eyes of enough of the voting public, is done well. That's why the last government fails. They did nothing. I think the current government is wise to put their head down and do things. Now, not everything it's done has worked so far, but one, they're a new government. Two, let's see how much keeps working and and doesn't work before we can make a fuller judgment. The Labor Party is more united. It still has its factions and it still has its fights, but it's not as undisciplined as it was. And... It seems to be more competent than not. And inflation is a big scary word that's floating around at the moment and there's not enough data available to suggest whether this inflation is structural or whether it's related to the savings that were built up during COVID. 
But it does appear that interest rates will keep going up until the Reserve Bank thinks that spending has been curbed enough. And inflation in itself is neither good or bad. It just depends on the economic circumstances at the time. But uncontrolled inflation is no good at all. So that's where the Balancing Act is at the moment for the federal government. And Stage three tax cuts, it's just an issue that will not go away. And even though they're not due to come in until the 1st of July 2024, over 18 months away, and the media is trying to get so much traction on this issue. And when the issue runs out of oxygen, they always find out other ways to keep rolling along. The Guardian created an entire article about how a constituent had said that Tanya Plibersek had told him that if it was up to her, that she'd get rid of the tax cuts. And for the 150th time, David, I think it's fair to say that you and I agree that these tax cuts should be repealed, but the media just keeps going on about it at this stage. And it was reported that the constituent in this article was a long-time supporter and former Labor Party member, and Tanya Plibersek told him this at the Erskineville Public School Fair. And David, I haven't got a very high opinion of the mainstream media, as, as you know, but the bar just keeps getting lower and lower and lower. Now, in this article, we don't know what the context was. We don't know whether the claim is true or not. There's no way of verifying the information with this constituent. We don't know how the information was relayed to the journalist by this constituent. We don't know why the story was published. Was it near the sausage sizzle at the public fair or near the jumping castle? But it's just a continuation of the way that the mainstream media tries to frame anti-Labor messaging and putting pressure on the Labor government in a different way to what they used to do when the coalition was in government. So if the media is just going to make things up or present unsubstantiated gossip to generate its articles, well, it's going to be a long 18 months in the lead up to the stage three tax cuts. I was speaking to somebody who was speaking to Penny Wong and apparently Penny's going to install a communist lesbian Australia in the next three years, all populated from people from Vietnam and Singapore. I can't tell you where because it was said to me in privacy, but it was someone who knows. I think that was in the front bar in another pub in Erskineville, wasn't it? I think it was, yes. Yes, uh, after a Labor Party meeting, which must have been held somewhere. And this is the type of level. I, I, Tanya Plibersek may well think that the tax cuts are going to be repealed, and she may well want that too. And that's perfectly fine. And you're allowed to have different opinions. The whole point of the caucus in Labor is that you can express these opinions forcefully. But once it's been voted on, you, you stand in line with the rest of Labor. Whether this is right or wrong is a whole other debate for a whole other time. But that's, that's the way Labor started. Because of the way that the party was so fractured because of the different opinions that each state had. Also, they didn't want the party splitting over little things and being rolled by non-Labor. Having fought very hard to get into seats, I wanted to make sure that there was a, a unified voice. So even if Tanya Plibersek holds those opinions, it doesn't matter because she likely holds them as a private citizen, not as a member of cabinet making these decisions. Now, for all we know, she could be ringing around and trying to talk Jim Chalmers into repealing them. But I'm not going to take the word of an unverified source who spoke to her at some unnamed time under some unnamed context. It's just bizarre. And one theory that's been floating around, and I read about this on Twitter, David, so it must be true, but the theory is that the Labor government will allow economic conditions to deteriorate to provide cover if and when they do cancel the Stage 3 tax cuts. And 
I'm not sure about the merits of this tactic and you don't want to talk down the economy or let it become worse at such a difficult time. And and we've mentioned this before on New Policies, David, that there is a report that was produced 12 years ago and that's the Henry tax review. And at the time, the Labor government introduced only three of those 138 recommendations from the Henry tax review. And then they chose the one that created the most problems for them. And that was the super profits tax. And most of these recommendations are still relevant today. There's 135 others that they can introduce if they don't like the three that they did introduce. And I dig it out from the cupboards where it's collecting dust, maybe pay Ken Henry a copyright fee to use it again, give it a different name so it feels like it's new and there's your blueprint for some serious economic reform and that would show a lot of courage and maybe the same level of courage shown by the Hawke government in the early 1980s and that's one thing that Anthony Albanese keeps saying that he's modelling himself on the Hawke government and you never know that it might end up setting up favourable economic conditions for the next 20 or 30 years. It's clear that the neoliberal approach to tax and the neoliberal approach to everything has failed. And we need to rethink how do we pay tax? We've got to get the burden of tax off low income people and spread back throughout the whole gamut. Why should News Corp pay no tax? Why should mining companies pay no tax and and very little license? Why should richer people pay less tax? There's been a relatively successful campaign to undermine the notion of the social contract over the last 30 years, saying there's no such thing as society. There's no such, the only thing that matters is the individual. You should make all your own choices. And that's a very nice and very noble thing till you hit reality. We all need each other. We don't have to be total socialist collectivists. We can still run businesses and be creative and do all those individual things that are wonderful and great and make us amazing as human beings. But we can also work together and support each other and make sure that everybody has access to the same types of things that are of benefit, which is another thing that makes us amazing as human beings. So I think we need really Treasury to be cleared out of the neolibs, whether through natural attrition or through labour or the government saying, right, this is the new policy and if you don't like it, you can try and get a job elsewhere. It's beyond time for systemic reform, particularly of failed philosophies that never worked. And I know that that's not the first time we've said this on the the podcast, but, but till it's gone, we have to keep saying it. And cost of living is now the main issue the opposition is focusing upon, and that's to be expected. Labor did campaign on cost of living issues during the last election campaign, so it's understandable that the coalition will focus upon this and keep Labor to its promises. But there's no real change in the opinion polls. News poll ran with the headlines that Peter Dutton is clawing back into contention, and the recent Resolve poll actually went the other way. The coalition still has got this massive mountain to climb electorally, but it's still resorting to stunts. And we had the claims of Anthony Albanese bullying the Liberal National Party MP, Michelle Landry, in Parliament last week. And Apparently, Landry left the chambers in tears. Now, I didn't see this, and I don't think anybody else did. And then all the women MPs from the coalition went to the parliamentary courtyard to complain about it. Now, the coalition has got an identifiable problem of trying to appeal to women in the electorate. They just haven't got enough women in parliament, and they haven't got the right policies that appeal directly to women. 
Women make up almost 50% of the Labor caucus and they do have the policies that directly relate to women. So instead of the coalition trying to do something about this, they make up a stunt to make it look like Albanese is bullying a female coalition MP. They push this idea that Labor is not the party for women and try and claw back support in this particular way. Now, this is a tactic straight from the Republican playbook in the United States. It's a fabrication. It was all false, but the media ran with it anyway. And it just seems like the coalition still hasn't got that message from the last election. Put away the stunt, start actually working on policies that will appeal to women and reform the Liberal Party and the National Party so you can get more women into Parliament. And I think that would be far more effective than trying out a few cheap tricks in Canberra. Again, it goes back to were they being an effective opposition doing their normal duties as members of Parliament, helping their constituents, making informed and thoughtful and smart comment on government policy instead of these stunts. And I was a bit appalled because for the thousands of bullied women in the country who now saw how she was treated after because it was rubbish and she became a laughing stock. I wonder how many women watching that think, oh, that might happen to me. I better just put up with this. I think it's awful that they try this and had it been bullying it deserves condemnation and it has been suggested to me that Anthony Albanese does a little bit too much shouting and that may or may not be the case but the shouting wasn't aimed at Michelle Landry it was aimed at Peter Dutton to try and jump on this and it becomes a cheap stunt I think doesn't actually help people in that situation who are genuinely in that situation at all. And it hasn't helped their cause at all, except make people notice that they're a bunch of silks. And robo-debt has also reared its ugly head again, and the Royal Commission into the previous government's robo-debt scheme is hearing evidence at the moment, and there's some pretty awful material that's being presented there, and we're hearing from public servants, lawyers, people affected by robo-debt, people who had family members who suicided after receiving robo-debt notices, and we can see why the Coalition just wants to deal with the here and the now, and they just don't want to hear about the past, but the past is coming back to bite them. The Government did receive legal advice in 2014 that a robo-debt system was unlawful and unconstitutional, yet a year later they implemented the scheme, and that's when Scott Morrison was the Social Services Minister. They were also given legal advice during the actual operation of the robo-debt scheme that it was unlawful and unconstitutional, yet they continued to run with it. So the former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, he's likely to appear at the Royal Commission to explain his actions as well. But whatever the outcome from the Royal Commission is, and whoever goes down with it as well, we just have to make sure that governments can never introduce this type of system ever again. Yeah. The amount of genuine fraud that goes on is minuscule and almost non-existent. There's plenty of anecdotal evidence to suggest that there is some that goes on, but very little in hard evidence to suggest it goes on. It was clearly a way of weaponising aspirational Australians. Look at these people who are getting stuff that you don't, you've had to work for everything you've done with no help or support. Meanwhile, these people are getting that and we're going to get all that money back so we can spend it on the same people probably. 
David Spears apparently asked on Insiders, can we afford the NDIS? Anyone with any compassion would say it's not a matter of can we afford it, it's are we paying enough? And if not, how do we increase it? We have a media that likes to prey on the alleged dole bludger, and the media is owned by dole bludgers mostly, or the the mainstream media, people who can't run a business without government intervention. I am actually going to exclude possibly The Guardian and possibly Channel 10 owned by CBS in America. But other mainstream media we've found needs government intervention to survive. Um, by the way, I'm not a fan of either The Guardian or Channel 10, but fair is fair. And they all do great, and I've said this before, all media outlets do great work from time to time too. And I don't want to disparage the hard-working journalists and editors and etc. trying to keep a job who do bring us good work from time to time. But it's just ridiculous. We've got to really stop this notion of victim blaming and get back into what are the systems and, and what are the priorities of a wealthy country that still has people who need help. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Amazon Music, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can also donate to New Politics through Patreon. And please share, comment, or add a review. It helps other listeners find our podcast. There's also a few legal cases in the national news. Bruce Lerman was accused of raping Brittany Higgins in 2019 at Parliament House and the trial had to be aborted because of misconduct by one of the members of the jury where the jury member brought in their own research into the jury room. We assume that was done to influence other jury members and the jury hadn't been able to reach a verdict after deliberating for five days and after these research papers were found in the jury room, the judge dismissed the case and there'll be a retrial in February 2023. Now, it's an unsatisfactory outcome, but as a result of this mistrial, there have been calls for a different type of court system for dealing with serious crimes of sexual assault. Only around 15% of rapes are reported to police and ultimately only 3% of those result in convictions and only 10% of all rape trials result in a guilty verdict. And that's a really low statistic considering that prosecution usually decides to go to trial if they think that there's a good chance of winning the case. So obviously the system is not functioning well at all and for different reasons the Bruce Lerman trial was a more public example of this. And that was an issue that relates to the jury, not with the case itself. But these types of cases are heard every day all around the country with similar results. And it's a system that does need to change. There are two things that are at odds here, as, as far as I can see. And one is that the absolute necessity for the victim 
to be believed and to be able to report what has happened to the best of her knowledge anyway. The other one is the presumption of innocence of the accused. And I can't see an easy way through that. That notion, the French notion of having juries made up of experts and normal people seems to me to be something we can look at in Australia. The court should sort that out. And the courts have been seen to have failed in this. And I think yeah, we need, particularly for this type of case, most importantly, the victims get a safe and fair and healing approach to getting through this and seeing justice done. And in any legal system, trials do have to be fair and equitable, but the court system as it stands at the moment for these types of cases, it's not providing justice to the victims of sexual assault, so that's not fair and it's not equitable. And we might have to consider different ways of running trials for these more serious cases, like murder and sexual assaults. And the issue for me in the Lerman case is that it hasn't produced an outcome. And Everyone has to go through this whole process again and as, as though the first trial never actually happened. So that's putting a strain on everyone involved in the case. The time, the money and legal resources into the case have gone to waste, mainly because of the old rules about how juries and trials are constituted. And currently in every jury, people just go home at the end of the day and then they return the following morning. They're told by the judge not to do their own research or discuss the case with anyone, but whosoever know. A legal case is meant to be all based around the evidence presented in court. But in a group of 12 jurors, there's always going to be people on either side of the debate that do something like bring in their own research papers to try and prove a point, even though they're not meant to do this. So there's quite a few flaws within the system. And and you referred to this before, David, but there has been some discussion within the legal profession about that idea of a hybrid jury and judge system, maybe six of the jurors and three judges to work it all out. And that's a feature of the French legal system for serious crimes, including rape. And that's a system that looks at all the evidence that's presented in court and then makes a verdict based on that, while the Australian system goes through that process of testing the evidence and cross-examination. And that seems to be what the problem is in trials that relate to serious sexual assault. So most juries do do their job well, but most people don't understand the legal system very well. Most juries just want to get out of there as quickly as possible and go home or base their decisions on other non-legal issues but whatever the case is the current system just isn't working anymore yeah and the french system too is more about finding the truth of what happened whereas the english system which is the one we is about adversarial arguing for and against the guilt or innocence the french one is less about that and more saying okay what happened and then then determine later the guilt and innocence of it which might be a better system for here too given some of the other cases that have happened this week. My boy talks to me every day through my heart and tells me what I need to do. He told me to find his first year school report. And I guess it sums up that he died a leader. What happened to him should never have happened. I've got a young family, so I just imagine if that was my kids, you know, how, how devastated I'll be. It hurts, eh? Hey? Mm-hmm. You know, that's, I'm Noongar, so that's, you know, he's my mob, so. Everyone's hurting, especially the Aboriginal community here. We are, the pain is unbelievable. Marakama, 15, 15 forever. Rest in peace, my little cousin. 
There was also a recent incident in Perth where a 15-year-old Indigenous boy was beaten by a 21-year-old white man while he was walking home from school. Cassius Turvey died a few days later and the WA police tried to play down the racial aspect to the attacks by suggesting that he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time and that's a little bit odd because Indigenous people always seem to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But they were also asking the public not to draw conclusions. And it seems to be the same story all around Australia, whether it's Redfern, Darwin, Palm Island, Moree or Middle Swan in Perth. Police always try to downplay the racist influence in these attacks on Indigenous people. A 15-year-old boy has just been killed and they put so much effort into downplaying the racist element to it. Here's Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. This is just a terrible tragedy. And this uh, attack that clearly uh, is racially motivated uh, just breaks your heart. Uh, we're a better country than that. And uh, my heart goes out to the family and the friends. If the Prime Minister can say it, why can't the police? If a 15-year-old girl from MLC had been attacked in this way, and I hope that that never, ever happens, this would be massive national news for the next couple of months. But an Indigenous kid in a working-class suburb of Perth, it just tends to get brushed away. It's heartbreaking. This kid who was doing nothing, he was just walking home from school. They're trying to calm down, I think, some very heated emotions. I don't think that's the right way to do it doesn't help that there's entrenched racism within the system that makes these claims a lot less credible. We need to probably knock every institution we have down and rebuild it. It's just an awful and a heartbreaking thing to happen. I can't imagine what his family is going through. And for me, it's a continuation of the Black Lives Matter movement, which at this rate is probably n never going to end. But the question is always the same. When will Black Lives Matter? And we can see that justice has been applied differently for different groups of people all across Australia. And generally, Australia does manage its cultural differences in a better way than most other countries. But there's still a blind spot when it comes to Indigenous people. Police were trying to downplay the relationship between the alleged murder of this 15-year-old Indigenous boy and racism but then you think well who are you actually trying to protect here the prime minister made that link between racism and the crime so i don't think that would have been prejudicial to the court case whenever that occurs but it just shows that the wa police force along with the continuation of black deaths in custody and now with this incident how they've tried to downplay racism it just shows that they've still got a long way to go and they should be in a position where they should be able to do much better than this yeah I know that all police departments have been working towards improving race relations, but I'm not sure how successful they've been at it. Not being Indigenous, I can't really talk to it, but you get Indigenous liaison officers and people being hired for their connections with the Indigenous community, etc, etc. And I guess all of that is to be commended, but if it's not going to be taken seriously right across the board, it doesn't change much. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Amazon Music, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can also donate to New Politics through Patreon. And please share, comment, or add a review. It helps other listeners find our podcast. There is of our oral history.
pass your story to the children of tomorrow. I can't sit here and stare in sorrow. Bearers of our oral history, pass your story to the children of tomorrow. Stand them in good stead so they will follow. Sing strong. News Corporation has been pushing the meme for many years of Dictator Dan for the Victoria Premier, Daniel Andrews, and now that's morphed into Divisive Dan, just in time for the Victoria election on November 26th. Daniel Andrews is so divisive that he has a preferred Premier rating of 2 to 1 over his challenger, Matthew Guy, and in the latest opinion poll, Labor is ahead 59 to 41% in two-party preferred voting. And this idea of Daniel Andrews as a divisive leader has leaked into other publications, with The Age in Melbourne and The Guardian running articles also listed with this idea of Andrews as a leader who causes division within the community. And David, you and I have watched Daniel Andrews over the past few years. He rarely talks about the opposition. He talks about what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. During the pandemic, he was providing information during difficult lockdown periods in Victoria, but it seems that it's the News Corporation that's creating this division, not Daniel Andrews. I think it's not division as much as halving in that it seems that he's halved the the sales of the News Corp papers, (laughs) the ratings of Sky News, and the credibility of the Liberal Party gets halved every week, it seems. Matthew Guy is possibly the worst opposition leader in the country at the moment. Well, the one in Queensland is not so good either. Uh, We've got to be careful here. But there's an argument that he is the worst leader of a Liberal Party, which has some very strong contenders. Guy has no credibility at all. Uh, He's still remembered as the lobster with a mobster, and it baffled me that they'd bring him back. And it's been no surprise that he hasn't really cut through and is considered somewhat of a laughingstock. And again, it goes back to Daniel Andrews has done a decent job. Did he lock down too much? I don't think so. And Sydney got three more days of lockdown and I'm in an area which got a severe curfew of lockdown while the lockdowns were really hard on the ordinary citizen of Victoria. If you look at the COVID figures, it's much lower in Victoria than it is in New South Wales, for example. And we'll have some Cooker listeners now telling us, oh, they've baked the books, they've baked the books. It's not right, it's not right. You don't know, you don't live here. I don't live there, but I do know people in Victoria and I speak to them regularly. It's also a case of the Liberal Party in its modern form. The Liberal Party, which brought in these far right wing, aligned with fringe religious groups, economic neoliberals, losing more and more relevance. Victoria in November, possibly New South Wales in March, and they're gone. There's only two Liberal sitting members in the lower house in Western Australia. 
they need to basically put in major reforms and get rid of inappropriate people getting senior positions. And Matthew Guy was inappropriate. And despite everything that the Herald Sun, the Melbourne Age and the ABC have been able to throw at Daniel Andrews, Labor is still way ahead in the opinion polls and Labor has been far from perfect, but they're not incompetent. And Daniel Andrews has made mistakes, but Matthew Guy has been a poor leader and the Victoria Liberal Party is in a complete mess. But having said all of that, we just have to remember what happened in 1999. And the Liberal Premier at the time, Jeff Kennett, he was widely expected to win that 1999 election. He was way ahead in the polls, although the polls did narrow dramatically in the final week or two before the election day. And Steve Brax ended up winning the election with the support of independents. And in that election, the Liberal Party lost 15 seats. And the ABC's Anthony Green, he afterwards said that it was the only election that he'd ever worked on where he thought that there might actually be something wrong with his election computer. So that was a surprise election loss for the government in 1999. It could always happen again in 2022, although the coalition needs to win 18 seats to win the election. So it has to win more seats than Labor did in 1999. It also starts from further behind. So it is all unlikely, but you just never know what might happen on election day. Yeah. Steve Brax is a completely different person too. He was a capable, competent, charismatic, articulate leader of the the Labor Party and he'd done a lot to improve Labor's chances in Victoria. He was really working in the background and was able to present an an excellent electoral package when it counted. Um, And a lot of the polling didn't reflect that because of the way they campaigned. They truly came from nowhere. It, it was extraordinary. He became a good Premier of uh, Victoria, I think. I'm not quite game to call him one of the greats, but certainly he was a, a very good Premier for, for the time he lasted and, and very electorally successful. And again, the same pattern. They went in, they did their jobs, they represented their seats, they brought in good policy, they implemented that good policy, they followed through on the good policy, owned their mistakes, learn from their mistakes. (laughs) It really is that simple. I think the other point is that if Labor does win this election in Victoria, it will confirm the waning influence of the mainstream media. Everything from the ABC, News Corporation, Nine Media, we had all of those trumped up stories on the 7.30 program about the endless lockdowns in Melbourne from the Herald Sun and from The Age. We had those endless stories from cafe owners and gym owners complaining about the lockdowns and dictator Dan. We also had all those cookers in Burke Street every Saturday morning and all of this was always highlighted within the media. So if Labor wins the third term, and we also have to remember that the third terms are becoming more and more unusual in Australian politics, if they win, despite everything that's been thrown at them by the media, it will just emphasise how much the media is wasting everybody's time by trying to divide the community and influence election outcomes. The old media is dying slowly. The new media is coming through. There's plenty of very good independent media out there, including present company, but it runs the gauntlet from the left into the right. Some of the far right stuff is, well, and some of the far left stuff is a bit. But when you get to the less extremes to the centre, there's some really good stuff out there. And I think a lot of people who are interested in the news and interested in politics and interested in what's going on are migrating to these smaller, more interesting, less strident, less obviously controlled by vested interests. Predicting the future is, of course, ridiculous. But I'm wondering if 
in another 10 years, we won't be seeing mastheads that we all grew up with and, and really thought were going to be with us forever. And Daniel Andrews has had his problems with corruption within the Labor Party. There was misuse of taxpayer funds in the first term of his government and how much of this is remembered by the electorate eight years later is hard to say, but Daniel Andrews is the most progressive leader in Australia in what is probably the most progressive state in Australia. And we could also say that the ACT has also got a very progressive government. Daniel Andrews has introduced a number of social reforms, voluntary assisted dying. He held a royal commission into domestic violence. He's commenced negotiations for a treaty with the Indigenous people of Victoria. Education standards are the highest in the country. There's also a very ambitious infrastructure program that he's implemented over the past eight years. And the hospital system does have problems and there are issues with the ambulance service as well. And these issues might cause problems for the Labor Party in the lead-up to the state election. But it is going to be very hard work for the Liberal Party. They're not a progressive party. Many of their branches have been taken over by Pentecostal and conservative Christian groups. Matthew Guy's not an inspiring leader and he's mistake-prone, but we have to remember that the same was said about Jeff Kennett all those years ago, and he ended up becoming Premier for seven years. And there have also been suggestions that Victoria teal-type independent candidates will take seats away from the Labor Party, but in the federal election, they were taking seats off the Liberal Party, not the Labor Party. So unless it's a different type of teal, this is probably not going to happen. I'd say that the Labor Party is probably going to have more threats coming in from the Victoria Greens, but the Greens are unlikely to side with the Liberal Party, so it's not clear how the Labor Party can lose government, but I'm not suggesting that it can't happen, but it's also not very likely. If the Liberal Party were effective, they'd probably have a much better shot. The corruption issues should have probably damaged Andrews and maybe even caused the resignation of more ministers and possibly even himself. Having said that, a lot of it wasn't as big as it seemed and he did deal with it fairly well. It's not like New South Wales where they just ignored it, ignored it, ignored it until ICAC came knocking and then it destroyed all those reputations, rightly. I think Dan Andrews is an immensely popular leader amongst his supporters. He's probably the most beloved political leader in Australia today. And I think, too, he's not going anywhere soon because he showed compassion at a time when compassion was needed. He showed decisiveness at a time when decision was needed. He showed courage at a time when courage was needed. Is he a great Premier? We, it's too early to tell. There's a few black marks against his name, as, as we said. But when he needed to count, he did count. And he stared down for the longest time massive vested interests that wanted to keep the economy going at all costs. Anything can happen, and in Victoria especially. Victoria and Queensland are the two wildcard states in many ways. New South Wales can be too, but I suspect he'll get his third term. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. 
We'll see you next time.